magazines still line newsstands, and you'll see some of them at the checkout counter at the supermarket. But the industry is not as glossy as it used to be. While many magazines have folded, others have transitioned to a digital format. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're looking back at 50 years of magazine making with Walter Bernard. He's been the designer and art director of many of the best-known magazines and newspapers in the United States, including Time, Fortune, and The Atlantic. He also worked at New York Magazine in its early days. The job was offered to him by New York Magazine co-founder Milton Glaser. Bernard and Glazer recount their days working together at New York Magazine and their work on many of the nation's other best-known publications in a new book called Mag Men. I recently caught up with Walter at his Manhattan offices. So what road led you to designing magazines? Well, I've loved magazines since I was a kid, uh, mostly because my father, who was a Zane Grey reader, that's a, those are Western novels, uh, was also a subscriber to the big magazines, Collier's, Life, Saturday Evening Post. And I loved those magazines because I got to look at them after he was done. As I grew up, uh, went to uh, Catholic prep school, etc., I started to look at magazines like Time and Esquire. And um, it always interested me that I could read the names of the people who worked there. The idea that um, if you worked on that magazine, your name was in the what they call, I later learned, the masthead. And also at Esquire, whose covers were wonderful, there was always a signature on the cover. It was a signature that said Henry Wolfe. And he's the name I remembered when I was um, a teenager because he signed his covers on Esquire. I didn't say I want to work in magazines then. I was going to ask you that question. Did you envision your own name on a magazine at that time? No, but I thought that was really cool. That was really a great thing to do. No, I I finally did, after uh, Catholic school, wanted to go to art school. I say that because uh, Catholic schools uh, want you to either be a priest, a doctor, or a lawyer. (laughs) They weren't thrilled that I wanted my transcript sent to an art school. But in any case, uh, that's what I did. And what was your first magazine job? My first magazine job was at a small magazine by Dell Publishing called Ingenue. And it was a kind of rival to Seventeen magazine. It was my first job when I came back to New York. And uh, it gave me a great education. uh, It was a small magazine, uh, a monthly for young women. But it um, had a small staff. And I was hired as um, uh, the art director's assistant. The art director was a woman named Eileen Hunt, who had worked for Otto Storch and many good art directors. And so I got a good education there for two years. How did you find your way to New York Magazine? Uh, Well, when I came to New York, the city, having gone to a a not-so-good art school, I uh, not only remembered the name of Henry Wolfe, but also of Milton Glaser. And the reason I remembered his name is because a lot of the paperback uh, books that we read uh, had illustrations by Milton, and in those days his signature was very clear on the cover. And I knew that uh, Milton was a terrific illustrator. I didn't know a designer very much about him. But when I got to Ingenue, Pushpin 
Studios was thriving and Milton became more well-known. Also, I had left a school, by the way, that was on the top, on the penthouse of the Flatiron Building called the Art Career School, since gone. And I found when I left that a new school had opened down the street on 23rd Street. It was called the School of Visual Arts. And I went down the block and, and uh, looked at their brochures and found out that, unbelievably, Henry Wolfe and Milton Glaser both were teaching at night. And so I took a course, strangely enough, taught by both of them at once, called Designing for the Written Word. And that's where I met both Henry and Milton. Now, my ambition then became I wanted to work in magazines for Henry Wolfe. Uh, Henry was the great magazine designer. He had designed Esquire and Harper's Bazaar and Show Magazine by the time I got there. Uh, beautiful, elegant designs. It never occurred to me to want to work for or with Milton. First of all, Milton was an illustrator, a designer, and running Pushpin Studios. But Milton and Henry uh, both helped me get a job at Esquire. And I became the assistant art director at Esquire in, in 1964. That was a great experience. What was it about that experience that made it great? It was a rather small staff. It was a very popular magazine at the time. had a very good circulation, thick with ads, and full of interesting editors and writers. Uh, Tom Wolfe, Gay Talese, Gloria Steinem, Nick Pileggi, all of those kind of people were wandered in and out. Sam Antipit was the art director. I became his assistant. And... Every day was a learning experience, and I stayed there for four years. One day in uh, 1968, I got a phone call. My assistant picked up the phone and said, here's that phone call you've been waiting for. And I thought, oh, my God, Henry Wolf is calling me. And I got on the phone, and the voice said, Walter, this is Milton. <laughs> it's time for you to come to New York. And I thought, you know, New York Magazine had just started. Uh, this is June of 1968. New York Magazine started in April of 1968. And it had a rocky start. And Milton had realized that uh, doing a weekly was not a piece of cake. and He really needed some help. And I had done four years at Esquire by then, and um, I, I, I was ready to move up. So what was the process like to build New York Magazine? Well, when I got to New York, upstairs in this building, on a, on a floor very much like this, 40 people jammed into a big room uh, with uh, very little uh, facilities, including one bathroom. It had just had a difficult time because of the uh, Viva story, a story about the Andy Warhol factory by Barbara Goldsmith, which was terrific, but um, the pictures by Deanne Arbus were wonderful and startling, but also um, very disturbing to our advertisers. And suddenly, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, all the big advertisers left. Um, some readers changed their subscription, but the magazine was too new, really, to uh, uh, make that decision, I think, by the readers, but the advertisers got afraid. So when I got there, the magazine, which was now in uh, July of um, 
68, the magazine was um, struggling. We were concerned about getting paid, actually. One of the things that started to happen was that the magazine really began to bond with its readers. It, it's, we always had an idea of journalism and service, but a couple of things, in my opinion, uh, started the ball rolling. One was a little column in the back of the book called The Underground Gourmet, written by Jerome Snyder and Milton Glaser, both so interested in food and in going to small, cheap restaurants. They began to um, do this column actually in the Herald Tribune. The column was small when New York Magazine started, but soon you found that people were responding. And if they did a story about a little Polish restaurant in the neighborhood, suddenly the next week that restaurant was crowded. And we realized that people were interested in reasonable prices for food, and they were all interested if they could be recommended to go out of their neighborhood and to go to an Italian neighborhood or a Polish neighborhood or the Chinese, et cetera, and, and learn about the rest of the city at the same time sample a good, reasonable, cheap meal. And it got bigger and bigger. But it really bonded readers with the magazine in the sense that they said, this magazine is on our side. I mean, look, it, they, they, it wasn't about advertising. It was about, look, there's a great little restaurant up on 8th Avenue. Here's the menu. Here's the ambiance. Here's the price, you know, and um, here's what we ate. And it was great for us, uh, some of our staffers. We would, of course, go to lunch with Milton and, and Jerome because they needed other people to sample food. So uh, we had a great time. But that was one of the kinds of things through various uh, and, and other services, uh, Best Bets, et cetera, that um, aside from the journalism, kind of it convinced that uh, readers that we were trying to help them cope with the city. What issue of New York Magazine are you proudest of? You know, I, that's hard to say, but one of the things I really enjoyed doing, and, and Milton and I enjoyed doing, was the uh, fall catalog. The fall catalog was something we stole from, um, I think, the London Sunday Times, and that was that they did every uh, September a really analysis of movies, theater, uh, music, concerts, um, books, all of the arts that were coming because, as you know, it, it was always a fall season where everything got started again. And we decided to do something called the Fall Catalog, which would um, prepare New Yorkers for what's coming. And uh, Seymour Quast, a member of Pushpin and, and uh, a good friend and illustrator, did um, every one of our full catalog covers uh, brilliantly. And we had a lot of fun because we could use many artists and photographers to illuminate the upcoming movies and shows, etc. I'm proud of those only because they were a great service, they were fun to do, and, and always a, a, a good seller. And, and we did them for the nine years that we, we were at New York. Is there a cover that sticks out to you as quintessentially New York magazine? Uh-huh. Well, one of the, the covers that was most controversial, in a way, was Tom Wolfe's Radical Chic. 
in which uh, he covered the Leonard Bernstein uh, party for the Black Panthers, and we did a, we knew he was working on it, and 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 we didn't have a, at the time we knew he was going to do it. We didn't have any at the any photographs at the time, so we um, uh, had Carl Fisher photograph women in gowns and uh, black gloves raising their hands and and uh, in, in protest the way the Olympians did in the early 60s. In any case, that was not a typical cover, but it was the kind of cover that got a lot of um, notoriety. We also made some covers that were really horrible. We, we, we were doing a, uh, a wonderful story by a man whose theory was that you can solve some of New York problems uh, by turning them upside down, and 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 he had an, a whole theory about how to think about how how to solve New York problems, which we called or he called in a book New Think, and we couldn't figure out how to illustrate what he was talking about, but we then decided to do this cover all type, and the only gimmick or only interesting thing was we would turn the New York Magazine logo upside down, which we did. And, of course, nobody recognized it on the newsstand. <laughs> and it was one of the worst-selling covers we've ever done. But I liked the power issues that we did. Uh, we, uh, every, every, at the end of every year, we did Who's Got the Power in New York, and they were fun. And I think one of my favorite covers there was um, uh, we did a play on The Invisible Man. But I, I have no favorite. There was one issue that tackled the topic of high-rise safety and very eerily yeah. on the cover of that magazine, not on the cover, inside the magazine. Well, I'm sorry, you're right. On the cover there was a roof of the World Trade Center with people because at the time the doors were open and you could go to the roof of the World Trade Center. And that was um, based on the fact that there was a movie called The Towering Inferno and people were concerned about the fact that uh, New York City fire departments could only, their ladders would only go up so much, and now we had these huge high rises typified by the World Trade Center, in which there was no way you were going to rescue by ladder anyone unless they were, um, the fire was on the sixth floor. And um, because of that film, we had an article done about high-rise towers. The strange thing was, that Alan McGee, uh, the artist, we asked him to um, portray the uh, high-rise building, which we used, obviously, the World Trade Center was the highest at the time, the firemen below, and a fire coming out of the, the top floors, and it turned out to be right where the planes hit. So when you look at that illustration now, you actually see 9-11. When you look back at your years at New York Magazine, what would you say was the biggest lesson learned? The value of collaboration. They, the, we l worked in a big open room. We had no receptionist for a long time. If you had an idea, you could come up and show it to us. The, the fact is that we learned to feed off each other and, and that nobody was the, um, the holder of all the ideas or all the, the, the best headline could be written by uh, somebody in the art department. We, we all uh, worked together kind of in a, in a mad frenzy to get a magazine out every week because um, the staff was made up at the beginning 
of people who had been trained at things like the Herald Tribune and also at the monthly Esquire. So all talented people. Uh, I think there was only one, Clay himself, who once worked at Life, had worked on a weekly. And uh, so it was, at the beginning, a, a real struggle to get a magazine out every week with, of course, production uh, values that were uh, left a lot to be desired. For those not familiar with Clay, tell us about Clay. Clay Felker was... Um, our founder and brilliant editor, or co-founder, he came from St. Louis, trained in uh, sports and some journalism. But like a lot of people who come from the Midwest or the West, was just fascinated by New York. And he just loved journalism. He worked at Life. He worked at uh, Esquire. He almost became the editor of Esquire and lost out to um, Harold Hayes. And so then he went to the Herald Tribune and actually did um, New York Magazine in the Herald Tribune for a while. So when the Tribune folded and then the World Tri uh, Journal Tribune folded, New York, the Sunday supplement, seemed like an attractive idea. And so the Whitney people who owned the Herald Tribune were... Uh, were out of publishing and they were had no interest in were no interest in, in, in keeping it going. So um, I think he bought the title of New York for five thousand dollars, and uh, he and Milton started. Uh, Clay uh, Clay was that kind of editor who really worked at being the editor, and I don't mean from nine to five, but he was out every night. He learned about, he was fascinated by the city, and, and he also, unlike uh, other editors who only focused on their journalism uh, desires, understood service. He loved the idea of best bets and where to buy, uh, you know, a, a certain kind of object or where to eat cheaply or what the best uh, theater price would be or airline ticket. And so he quite willingly not only combined service and journalism, but when we had a good idea for the service, would bring it to the surface, let it be a cover story as, a, as opposed to a journalism story, which got him into a dispute with Jimmy Breslin, as a matter of fact. Jimmy was one of the uh, founding editors of, of the magazine and did many things in the first couple of years. But Jimmy didn't like the idea of service. He derided the idea of best bets and uh, underground gourmet and uh, fashion and any of those things that he wasn't interested in. And finally, uh, I think somewhere in the early 70s, after he, his unsuccessful run for mayor, <laughs> for controller and with mailer, he, he left the magazine. What was it like to work with the likes of Jimmy Breslin and Nora Ephron and Gloria Steinem? Well, Gloria was one of the founding editors as well. A at the beginning, Clay's team, uh, Clay and Milton's team, the, the, the big writers were uh, Tom Wolfe, Gloria, and, and, and Breslin, and Nick Pileggi, and Jerry Goodman. Who, uh, you know, there were quite a few. They weren't on staff. These were contributing writers, but they wrote regularly. I, I mean, during the week, you know, you could always rely on Breslin to make something up if you were in trouble. And the idea of uh, getting Gloria to 
uh, write about politics was brilliant. Clay th realized that she didn't have to write about women's issues or any of those silly stories she was um, assigned to at Esquire and other magazines, and he had her do what she was interested in. And she started the idea of the city politic, which became a regular column. And later we helped her start Ms. Magazine, which we launched uh, within the pages of the magazine. So uh, we all got to know each other and, and um, interact. There was a hostile takeover of New York yeah. Magazine. What was that, in the late 1970s? It was in 1976. Uh, late 76, uh, Rupert Murdoch actually took over the magazine physically on J January 1, 1977. Is that when you left? Yep. We all left. Uh, and, and no, that's not fair. The senior staff left. Obviously, there are people who needed jobs, and we left at uh, Ken Oletta, Pileggi, Tom Wolfe, Gloria. I mean, we all wanted to work for Clay. Clay lost the magazine. And, and Milton, of course. So we all resigned. I was lucky because weeks after that, I got a call from someone who said, would you be interested in talking to Time Magazine? So, and I said yes. So that started me on another, another path. What did you think of New York Magazine after you left? Did you continue to read it? Oh, I get it today. You know, it had its ups and downs. First of all, because at the beginning, Murdoch, had to scramble, and, and uh, James Brady, a good friend of Clay's, became the editor for a while. Uh, then uh, uh, they had a series of editors, um, and I won't name them all, but I must say that at a certain point when Bruce Wasserstein bought it and hired Adam Moss, and that's about 18 years ago now, he, um, he brought it back. Adam is a terrific, brilliant editor, uh, did a great job, and he was smart enough also to understand that after 2000 you had to start dealing with the Internet and podcasts and all sorts of things to keep the magazine alive. Yeah, what do you make of the state of the magazine industry in today's digital world? I don't know how big an industry it is anymore. The, the um, magazines will, fl will continue, but you could have a nice job at a wonderful magazine that has 3,000 circulation and somebody's either supporting it or it's supported by readers. And there'll be a lot of these special interest niche magazines. The idea of a general interest magazine with a circulation over a million is just not happening anymore. How does that make you feel? Well, it makes me grateful that I worked at a time when, you know, we were talking about uh, having your name on the masthead. The, the thrill of New York Magazine was one thing because we had so much reaction, but when I got to time, I could be exhausted on a Friday, come home at 3 in the morning, but I would know presses were running, printing 6 million copies with my name on it, and that was, you know, every week. So whether I did a good job or a mediocre job or a great job, 6 million people were going to see it, and, and that was a kind of a fun reward. That's not going to happen anymore. I think magazines will still matter, but they'll be in different forms. Uh, people will be using, obviously, as they are now, different uh, forms. I have uh, two young assistant designers here who love magazines. They subscribe to nothing. They are totally electronic. 
they, I, I have to show them a, a real magazine. Of course, they, we have many copies here, but, but they don't buy any magazines. Do you tell them stories of what it was like for you to have to get a magazine out before computers? Well, th that's hard for, I, I, we still have some old supplies here. So I show them a T-square and a triangle and, and rapidograph pens. And, and uh, the way we had to paste up, they, the other day, there was a, a little strange can with a uh, nozzle on the top that uh, was in our supply closet. And Natalia, my assistant, said, could you please tell me what this is? And I said, that contained rubber cement thinner. And you use that to paste up type on the mechanicals. And the thinner was used that when you put the rubber cement down, and glued something, but you made a mistake, you had to take it up, so you squirted some thinner in there and lifted it. She said, I can't believe this. <laughs> but we have all sorts of uh, ancient ways of doing things. Even tape, which we'd need plenty of, is not used here hardly. Now, you and Milton did not part ways never to see each other again. You came back together and you created your own company. Yes. After... Um, uh, for five years, I did time in the Atlantic and Fortune, and Adweek, actually. And I got a call from Ben Bradley of the Washington Post. He said, uh, we want to design the magazine again. I mean, the, the newspaper uh, would like to talk to you. And I made an appointment with him to go to Washington. But I thought, my God, I'm, I, I, I didn't have any staff. I was, each of those jobs came serendipitously. And... I usually work there at, on the premises. Anyway, Milton called me and said, Jimmy Goldsmith, Sir James Goldsmith of England, had just bought a literary magazine in France and wanted him to redesign it. And would I think about working with him? And I said, well, I just got a call from the Washington Post, and that's going to be too big. Will you be interested in doing that? So those were our first clients, and we started WBMG. Um, we weren't here yet because... We had to get this floor and renovate it. But our first clients were Jimmy Goldsmith's in Paris and Washington Post in Washington. And from there on, it just built. We started in 82. In about 2002, we shut it down, and I just started Walter Bernard Design, only because there were no more big magazines willing to pay an outside consulting firm to simply redesign them, or newspapers. It was, it was a bad time. Everybody was concerned about the internet and the computers taking over, but also the fact that the budgets were falling. And so we just took on different projects. We worked on several uh, projects together and separately, and we've done that for the last couple of years until, and, and of course we worked on this book together. But we're in the same building, so we weren't, you know, we were never far apart from each other. You also worked on a couple of movies together, right? Yes. We did five of uh, Nora Ephron's films, uh, the, the titles for five. We did uh, You've Got Mail, we, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, Michael, Mixed Nuts, and This Is My Life, or her first movie. Because we knew Nora, and uh, she said, uh, have you ever done movie titles? And I said, no. She said, you know, I'm a, I could hire anybody I want. Do you want to do the movie titles? What inspired you and Milton to want to put your history in magazines into a book, into Mag Men? Well, you know that Milton has done several books. And his latest book, 
Arta's work, which is now 20 years old. He did a chapter, or at least several pages, with some of our work together, a uh, fortune cover of, uh, of 1997, etc. And in a caption he wrote, oh, I'm only showing a few things, but we've done so much work together, it probably could be a book in itself. You know, when I was looking at that, I said, yeah, someday we should do that. Well, the inspiration for the book was that we thought we had not only done some interesting work, but did have some material that was worth examining. The, the surprise and the delight, the, the ups and downs of, of journalism, and, and uh, even from a design point of view, we thought it would be interesting if we weren't just doing pictures and captions. Here's a cover. Don't you love this cover? Here's this photograph. Isn't that beautiful? Here's this illustration. Isn't that great? We tried to tell not only the stories behind them, but also to celebrate the work of the people who did it. So you never did get that call from Henry, did you? No. No. We, we were friends, but uh, no, I never got to work at show or, or with Henry. Well, this book covers 50 years of magazine making. It is Mag Men. Walter, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Mag Men by Walter Bernard and Milton Glaser is out now with a forward by Gloria Steinem. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Laura Babiak and Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.